0: Okay, can you hear me? Perfectly. Hello. Okay. I can hear you fine, dude. You disconnected for a minute there. I can hear you fine. You hear
1: okay, sorry. Okay. Fine. Oh my god. Oh my god. <laughs> the waveform. Okay. Oh, dude. Sorry. Okay, go on. <laughs> okay. now. Not every
0: geek with a Commodore sixty four can hack into NASA. hello everyone and welcome to another episode the music you were just listening to is from dualcore and you can find them at twitter.com forward/ dualcore music. We're glad that you guys can join us today, and I'm really glad to say that this week's episode, I'm joined again by my partner in crime, Jorge marca. Hello, Jorge. How are you doing?
1: Good. It's good to be back. It was really relaxing. I actually went to Austria for a little bit because I had family obligations. I deeply regret it now that I have to be self-isolating. And the government over here, so I live in London, Is it just went gangbusters on me. And he's calling me <laughs> twice a day. Because there was an event, which is airplane inbound. So I came from Austria, but then somebody tested positive on the plane. So I have to self-isolate for the same amount of time for both events, but they did not merge them in their system. So now I have two sets of people calling me every day.
0: Oh, that is really unfortunate.
1: So not only do I have to buy testing kit from the cartel, I suppose but i, I also <laughs> but i also have to get phone calls from people who clearly want to shoot themselves clearly like they they sound mid- like <laughs> my girlfriend has been so nice about she 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 picks up the phone with a commitment to entertain them and make their day a bit brighter because she's amazing oh, bless like that her. She was like hello let's <laughs> <laughs> go yes uh huh uh huh yes same are like you at home one. yes, yes
0: thank you uh, yeah. bye bye
1: i just can't <laughs> I know they're the messenger. I'm a dick. I'm sorry. (laughs) Anyway, I'm happy to be back. I'm also moving soon. And the target resident has a decent connection, like a a real internet connection. May I remind the non-listeners that right now I'm sitting on a 7 Mbps asymmetrical connection. So literally 7 down and 0 point whatever up.
0: So you're soon going to be basically inventing the wheel. Congratulations.
1: Oh, Nice. it is truly terrible coming but out of stone. It Age. has forced me to be way more organized. Like I've become a flex get ninja because my computer spends <laughs> all night downloading crap because of course, you know, it's either Zoom or the internet during the day for office hours.
0: Of course. My god. But it is good to have you back and uh, we hope everything goes well in the move and that we will soon be able to hear your voice even more crispy and clear than now, which is awesome. Crispy Bebe. So before we kick it off, as always, I want to give our standard disclaimer for all of our listeners that obviously the views and opinions that Jorge and I share on this podcast are our own and do not represent those of our employers, current or previous, or any groups or organizations that we are obviously associated with. And with that actually being said, we do have a very interesting show lined up for you all as well with a number of very interesting stories we want to actually close it off today before we jump off into the bite sized chunks with a look at the state of Android security as well. Now that it obviously is 14 years old, we do think it's come a long way. And it's probably a good time to have a reflection and see how far it's come along as well. But before we do dive into that, we do have a number of interesting stories. Uh, and topics with actually the first topic that we do want to discuss being a continuation of the theme that we obviously have had in the recent couple of weeks being obviously ransomware which is obviously what most people are actually talking about these days and is obviously the hot topic in government as well and recently there have been reports coming out of a new type of ransomware actually emerging that apparently uh, only started in February of this year. But this baby ransomware has already claimed and breached 30 organizations in its short lifespan so far since it went operational. The ransomware actually in question is actually being named Prometheus by the group currently tracking it, which is the Palo Alto Unit 42 threat intelligence team. And it is believed to be an offshoot of another very well-known ransomware variant called Thanos but for some reason, the group is actually trying to link themselves with the Re-Evil gang. Now, Palo Alto's Unit 42 threat intelligence team have been tracking them since their inception in February, and they said that Prometheus uses similar malware and tactics to the ransomware veteran Phanos, but the group actually claims to be part of the Re-Evil group in their ransomware notes. But the Unit 42 team did say that they have seen no indication that these two ransomware gangs are related in any way. And they also believe that this claim that they're making to be linked to the ReEvil group may just be an attempt to exploit ReEvil's name to actually persuade victims to pay up because of course ReEvil is very well known and very notorious right now in the ransomware scene. Uh, or. They believe it could just be a false flag operation to try and take attention away from the Fanos group. And they actually mentioned that the uh, preferred targets of this ransomware uh, are believed to be uh, governments, financial services companies, manufacturing, consulting agencies, healthcare services, and energy and law firms just to name a few and also like other ransomware gangs uh, prometheus does take advantage of the famous and well-known double extortion tactics and they do of course host a dark web leak site because of course if they didn't host a dark web leak site then obviously we just couldn't take them seriously as a ransomware gang at all come on and that is obviously where uh, the list of the 30 breached organizations actually resides in with reports indicating that so far only two of them have actually paid up now some have also commented that they noticed that prometheus does try to run like a professional enterprise in that uh, internally they actually do refer to their victims as customers and they actually communicate with their customers through an official ticketing system that also warns their customers when payment deadlines are actually approaching. So that's just obviously just another surprising thing that these gangs, <laughs> because, except that they just really want to be taken so seriously that they're using ticketing systems.
1: So last time when you were talking about the pipeline hacks, uh, I actually missed an opportunity to make this point, which is in the end, dark side in that particular example, and I don't want to take away from your case that you're making here, but in the case of DarkSide, DarkSide actually is doing enterprise risk management. I'm sure they do not call it like that. You know, they wouldn't want to, but that's what they're doing. Now they have like a double betting system in which things have to be cleared by them and approved. And that dude, they're establishing a second line of defense. <laughs> and these good people here are doing resource and capacity planning that is that that is that transcends morality you know what i mean like that's necessary that's what i mean exactly and i
0: mean we should also note that they they used to be doing that now that obviously dark side have supposedly shut up shop completely but a lot of these actual ransomware groups as you mentioned are pretty much doing that and they're even having qa processes in place which is really something. And some commentators even say that some of the processes in place are better than actually authentic enterprises have in place, which is something. You know why, right? Something. You
1: know why, right? Because they're not stupidly over governed by artificial incentives. They really need to get it done. You know what I mean? Like, exactly. It's critical That's a good point. Yeah.
0: <laughs> they probably have less political uh, headaches. Like, like heavily regulated industries
1: money. that need to be heavily audited are over governed because most people who are dealing with it just don't know what they're doing. And they don't understand what the, you know, how to straddle the line between pragmatism and compliance. Where these guys need to do it li- like they organically need to grow their their capacity plan. So they're doing it as a startup, as a sexy startup exactly you know what i mean like a fintech yeah, or something you know?
0: a <laughs> ransomware fintech is i wonder who's consulting the things for things. them i wonder oh trust me kpmg will start doing it soon these, I, I these do... guys are becoming so professional they'll get kpmg and deloitte to start auditing no, I'm, t-
1: I, I'm pretty sure <laughs> there's a bunch of people in belarus and lithuanian whatever consulting and, and putting together these sick JITA-based workflows for these people.
0: Oh, yeah, probably, definitely, for sure. But in, in regards to actual uh, Prometheus, um, in regards to their actual entry vector, that apparently has not yet been officially determined. But, of course, we can probably assume it probably is phishing related in some way. But they do say that they believe that the group actually does purchase access into target networks. And they also use brute force attacks to gain initial access into uh, corporate environments. And following successful compromises, the modus operandi of this group involves terminating backup and security software-related processes, which of course is like most other ransomware out there, in order to make it much more difficult for companies to actually recover effectively and forcing them to obviously negotiate more with these uh, criminal enterprises and another actually worrying aspect about Prometheus is that the operators actually like to generate unique payloads per victims which obviously make it very difficult to detect through these normal signature based detections and so organizations will probably have to obviously rely more on behavioral based analytics to detect Uh, these types of attacks. And the ransomware demands that they normally ask for when they actually compromise an organization range anywhere between $6,000 to $100,000 depending on the size of the victim organization. Now a separate report as well in regards to these ransomware groups found that ransomware groups are increasingly enjoying using VPN exploits to actually gain initial access with special mentions being made to the Sonic wall appliances, which obviously have had recent high profile vulnerabilities and severe vulnerabilities found in their appliances. And obviously this could be one method in which the Prometheus gang then uses to gain access because apparently the VPN uh, exploits is According to recent reports, the entry vector that was used in the Colonial Pipeline attack that uh, obviously occurred recently uh, with reports indicating that a VPN account that was actually no longer actually in use, but that the teams uh, had not yet got around to actually decommissioning and still had it active with its normal access rights. Uh, was the actual entry vector used into the colonial pipeline network. So obviously uh, so obviously there must be a lot of questions being asked and lessons learned uh, activities taking place uh, in regards to such an easy um, remediation step that obviously was missed. And that obviously resulted in major headaches and pain for the organization. So that obviously goes to show the importance of having a very good uh, identity and access management process in place and of the importance of once you no longer are using certain types of accounts, especially VPN accounts, it is really important to make sure that you revoke all accesses to those accounts and make sure that you haven't left any um, any accesses still active anywhere in your network
1: I think easy is a bit of a oversimplification I, I do understand and nothing takes away the fact that that's an obligation that one has but from an operational perspective I think the big battle in every infrastructure model is identity and access management I don't think that has been conquered as a baseline anywhere that's always a disaster no matter where you go <laughs> so these people happen to be running that stack in that particular configuration and be targeted yeah exactly
0: so uh, so now we're going to actually talk about one of the top news items that's actually been making its way around all the news headlines in the cyber security space in the last uh, two weeks or so and that was the apparent reports that For the last three years, the FBI has been covertly running an encrypted messaging app that tricked criminals into divulging their illegal activities on a massive scale, with reports actually indicating that they were able to actually get their uh, preloaded phones which actually had this encrypted messaging app out to around 11,000 individuals over the last 3 years they were obviously able to monitor all of their conversations and planning and which recently led to the arrest of hundreds of individuals
1: across 18 countries now the app- no question on this one before you move on let yeah. no, move on before you continue your your you know journalistic chronicle here. Of course. Uh, <laughs> what what if you have this scale between technically savvy and and professional? You have these two axes, right? So, pro criminals who have adequate kind of you know their game is is kind of sophisticated versus technically savvy, right? To what degree do you think the, the targeted individuals that actually fell for this were sitting on?
0: I believe that they actually spanned a wide berth from the small-time criminal, the, the small-time pimp on the, on the corner, to actually some very high-level bosses in some very sophisticated uh, criminal organizations because... So did this involve like shipping intercepts?
1: And stuff like this
0: no so actually um, what happened in this particular case was that the FBI of course uh, created this app and had it pre-installed on certain mobile phones so this app you could not download from an app store and you had to get it through word of mouth through another criminal so you had to know someone who had access to these pre-loaded mobile phones and apparently, this is a normal operation within the criminal underground because, of course, they don't want to uh, use something that is really publicly available. That obviously, the FBI can just get access to such as an app from the app store.
1: Can you can you unpack they, that, please? Yeah. So, so of course, what is so. the advantage? Like, of course, you know, you and I have been, you know, running a criminal enterprise for a very short amount of time, so we are we're <laughs> amateurs. But, of course. but one of the main things in my mind would be. Why not self host something like Matrix or also very simply just use like Telnix numbers over Signal or whatever? Like, how is any of that not better than some app that is kind of making the rounds and use and and kind of targeted at criminals or popular with criminals?
0: It's not the technological aspect of it that's the important. Uh, part here because of course they could use a number of uh, technical solutions to be able to accomplish this more or less but what is important is that they needed to get the buy-in from the criminals, they needed the criminals to use this platform on a regular basis and how they did this was that they actually gave the phones to their informants and insiders within criminal organizations and groups to actually start distributing it inside uh, criminal underground. So they started obviously peddling this inside, telling their other quote unquote criminal friends, I've got this new phone, this new app is really great, you have to use it. And it got to such a success when they started distributing it, that they actually managed to actually get it all the way to a very well known drug kingpin who actually started promoting the platform and the mobile himself to all of his senior level uh, oh, sorry friends. I
1: was thinking about cyber criminals this was popular among just criminals no just criminals sorry exactly. not just, no, just criminals, criminals like <laughs> the the lowest of the low oh forget about oh come on (laughs) i'm sure they're using whatsapp or whatever that that has to be better i mean
0: this 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 literally was actually as you just mentioned this was literally peddled as the whatsapp for criminals literally oh my god that's what it was basically and so they basically said here that they used this uh platform which they were obviously surveilling 11,000 people for any communications that was related to organized crime, drug trafficking, and money laundering. And they also managed to stop more than one murder from actually taking place, including the planned murder of a family of four in Australia, which obviously is a huge win. So I give them a round of applause for that, because when they say a family of four, I'm thinking children are involved, which obviously, if if you're one of those people, you deserve to get locked up immediately for anything like that. 100%. And the actual operation itself was codenamed Trojan Shield. Uh, and they obviously designed this app to be enticing to criminal gangs and suit their needs for secure and encrypted uh, communications to take place over there Dude, as well. Lack
1: of enterprise risk management, I'm telling you. <laughs> of course, you know. <laughs> problem.
0: I really do applaud the actual uh, operation for ha- I really applaud them for what they did and what they managed to pull off and the end result. But one thing did concern me a little bit in regards to this, and that is a statement that they released afterwards. And in that statement, they did say, and I quote this part, more than 800 suspects were arrested worldwide in one of the largest and most sophisticated law enforcement operations to date in the fight against encrypted criminal activities now as i said i'm really the law enforcement officers on the back for a job well done here because this was clearly a very well organized very well planned very well resourced and executed operation which had a clear and defined scope of who they wanted to go for which is really great and the end result was a massive win for them so massive congratulations for them but i worry that with this language that they're using that they'll also use this type of event as something to help them justify their ongoing campaign into encryption protocols and gaining backdoor access into them so they can obviously monitor more communications
1: worldwide
0: because of course
1: you know what made me think about this as well this week Um, so you know apple ios 15 that will come with or eventually allow for an apple vpn and uh, email tracking protection and all that stuff, which, by the way, we'll talk about in the next episode.
0: Nice. So Um.
1: I I I was talking to my girlfriend about who actually would benefit from this, right? So we we, we know governments cannot actually defeat encryption. Like, if you're a criminal and you have access to technically savvy people or you are technically savvy yourself, you're not relying on, you know, encryption in certain ways, like, for example, in popular apps or whatever, you're rolling your own kind of, you know, GPG-style encryption, right? So you're, you're 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 encrypting the encrypted message, or rather you're using encrypted data over an encrypted channel and so on, right? So there's many ways you can self-host your messaging, you can self-host your email, whatever you're doing, right? You can actually defeat any tracking the government would want to do, right? If you're actually motivated. So let's say professional criminals who know what they're doing, and are well resourced and motivated, will not be affected by you know more sort of impingement on civil liberties and encryption. And privacy nerds are in the same camp. They, they, they basically doing the same thing, except they're not, you know, breaching the law. I, I think I think the I think people who'd actually bind to this iOS 15 VPN, a Mozilla VPN, and all that crap are are, are just a you know day-to-day, non-technical people who care about their privacy but don't care to scratch beneath the surface. So even though your your concern is completely valid, I'm thinking the people who actually really care will not be affected by this. And to be perfectly honest, every day that goes on, I'm less and less and less uh, hopeful that genuine appreciation for privacy and really minimum disclosure, minimum knowledge, infrastructure, and so on are not going to be marginalized by governments. You know what I mean? I I, I think that largely is a lost battle. You know?
0: So I totally agree with the point you just made, and I'll probably just also take it one step further and say that I also think that maybe even the general public may be getting uh, weary nowadays of all of this talk about privacy and its importances, because it does seem that the general public, since the days of the Edward Snowden revelations, a number of years ago, when they were obviously quite rightfully outraged about all the intrusive behaviour of the US government and intelligence agencies around the world. Uh, But as time has obviously moved on, it does seem that a large portion of the general public and by that I'm including not the ones who are obviously really privacy focused or really tech savvy, uh, they seem to obviously be putting privacy on the back burner at this point now as well, compared to how it used to be in the past. And I suppose that just is is normal uh, for uh, many, uh, many issues uh, of the day where obviously over time its relevance in the perception of the general public starts to wear off.
1: How do you reconcile that with the figures for iOS 14.5 and the fact that Approximately three quarters of people are opting out of tracking, because um, I think, I think the I think okay,
0: yeah. I, I, f- I think the the notion about um, obviously the backdoors into all communications protocols, or at least giving governments access or a means to be able to read everyone's communications and the actual notion of being tracked online by the general public are viewed as two separate topics. So, of course, uh, when you present somebody or anybody with the notion that uh, do you really mind uh, if someone tracks you online through all of the different apps and websites that you go to so they can obviously profile you and actually gauge uh, and get a good idea of what your behavior and habits are like. Of course, most people are always going to say no to that. But in regards to the actual encryption uh, arguments that we've been having for the last couple of years and which the government has obviously always been trying to make repeated cases for, the general public, I feel that uh, they probably view that in a separate way way so a lot of the general public probably buys into the government's argument that they want to do this for quote-unquote protecting the children that's one of the main lines that they always use but in regards Is, to in the this tracking comment, part of are it
1: children children or in in this comment are children like everybody else like paternalistic about people
0: no so children are children so they the government always in the argument for the backdoor encryption makes the argument that they don't want pedophiles and people who engage in child uh, child trafficking to have a safe haven to be able to communicate with so they always made the argument that we have to do this to protect the children which Of course, everyone agrees with and all the security professionals as well do agree that this is a bad activity, that they want law enforcement to succeed at stopping. But at the same time, the argument that they make is that law enforcement already has the means and the resources and the intelligence to be able to go about this in different ways. And I do feel that this actual story about how the FBI actually ran this sting operation does actually go to reinforce that fact as well, because they clearly used a very well resourced And they came up with a brilliant strategy in order to be able to do this, which didn't involve actually putting any type of backdoor or gaining access to popular communication apps that everyone in the general public and general vicinity depends upon on a daily basis to be able to communicate very personal and sensitive information. Because I can't even imagine if someone was to gain access to my WhatsApp communications. I mean, there's nothing really incriminating, but it's just a general conversations that i have with my family which is obviously of a very personal nature that i obviously wouldn't want people to especially the government to be able to freely have access to
1: i don't want to get too political about this but Mm -hmm. most of my objections with lawful interception or the probability of lawful interception are on principle and have no practical basis right like in the end This is much like the two or three conversations we've had in the past about how how it is morally preferable to be in control of the stuff you buy and consume so in the end the core issue and we've been over this several times is that the government Mm -hmm. is people
0: (laughs) (laughs) exactly they
1: are susceptible to the same to the same temptations and faults and pitfalls and fuck ups and everybody else right so yeah uh, and then, and this, we went over this in Shadows, like 5, and I think one of the best conversations we ever had in the podcast regarding Tutanota and the fact that Tutanota wouldn't play ball with the German government. Mm-hmm. It, it's also about getting old timers who have a surveillance background, a traditional surveillance background, wanting to not consider the consequences of using technology in harmful ways. Right? Because the, the harmful technology debate has a large amount of nerds <laughs> trying to say inflammatory <laughs> and ridiculous things about technology. And by the way, a lot of them are making good points. Like, for example, if you go to sockless.org, you will read a bunch of you know, highly nerdy things that are fun. It's just one more rabbit hole you can go down. But in the end, the harmful technology is a valid concept, right? So, and, and I think mm-hmm. old-school surveillance types as you were saying are furthering kind of the foray into how do we evolve technology in the wrong direction right so but but and how we can time, avoid doing that no no I, I i think i think i think the people running operations like this are under leadership that is mostly comprised of people in their 50s and 60s who consider technology, who have no appreciation for civil liberties and technology or no ability to understand the implications of backdooring. True, yeah, exactly. Exactly,
0: because I do think that this is definitely an interesting conversation, and I think it's probably something that we will be returning to many times with this particular one, because it is obviously uh, a recurring theme, and it's always, always interesting. And I totally agree with you. I mean, from a technical point of view, it is possible for governments to be able to actually uh, gain what they want. But as you said, on principle, uh, it does raise a lot of, of concerns and uh, namely being things like how would the government be able to protect the secrets that are needed because of course they've uh, repeatedly shown that they lose those secrets or that they get hacked themselves and on top of that if you were to be able to gave give this type of access to someone like the UK or US government for example very shortly after that you can be sure that uh, governments like uh, uh, Myanmar and China would also want the same type of accesses, which again, on principle, would be extremely concerning as well. Even even having the US and the UK governments having access to this type of thing is of concern as well. Uh, to anybody. But having a regime that you know, would deliberately use that in order to harm people uh, that they uh, that they view in a negative way, or they feel threatened by is even more concerning as well. So of course, we want to be able to find some type of middle ground.
1: So, So something else to consider is that we can establish a very kind of crude framework to make a point here. Uh, So let's say, for example, you can have technology that doesn't have lawful interception and zero knowledge built in in some way. Or a technology that doesn't work off minimum sets of data or kind of, you know, has automated proofs like, you know, the upcoming Oracle networks and so on. So there is technology out there with which you can actually build trust, like zero knowledge trust right or you you can produce trust as necessary with minimum information and then you have technology that works ignoring that and then you have to backdoor it you have to do a number of interventions that are undesirable right something that in my view has become completely has been laid bare completely like emperor with no clothes type situation during corona for me is that governments in general have no interest in the former like like in the end for example in the process of getting by the way i'm so grateful that i'm vaccinated at least first dose right and i would you know encourage everybody i know and love to get vaccinated but during the process of self-isolating i have self-isolated for a combined like two and a half or three months of the pandemic because of travel and just maybe track and trace exposure blah blah right Um, And also, uh, during getting vaccinated, I've had my data taken down, same data, also excessive amounts of data taken down, at least, I would say, like nine or ten separate times. Wow. So can you tell me why do you need to confirm double-digit pieces of data about my personal life? Just to let me know that somebody out there with whom I shared uh, uh, a room or a establishment has been tested positive. Why? Why do I need that? They have my phone, they can call me. They have their phone, they can call them, and they can just let me know.
0: Exactly. I mean, it makes sense. I'm it's, sure someone, you know, someone, someone's brain is having the word uh, blockchain going through their mind somewhere. I'm thinking how they can do it. I don't mind how, how you get it done, do that.
1: that's besides the point, right? Uh, but mm. point is, I, I, have, I have seen zero efforts by the governments that influence my life the most to actually use technology by design to serve people, to actually serve people.
0: Of course, because mostly disappointing. in governments, you don't really have technology-savvy people actually in those positions, regrettably, because it would be helpful if they at least had some understanding as well in regards to technologies and how they work and the background behind them before they actually obviously passed laws or attempted to undermine some, some of those key uh, technologies that we depend upon for communication or other purposes as well. But it definitely will be an interesting uh, uh, thing to, to watch in the future for sure and we can be sure that this particular case they will probably be showcasing as a win for law enforcement versus encryption and I just hope that in that regard they obviously don't go too far in regards to actually using it to also undermine our encryption because as as I mentioned this operation clearly shows that they don't need to have that level of access because they clearly have very smart people who are very well resourced and are able to break up very sophisticated crime syndicates and operations without that type of access but with that being said and talking about a large numbers of different uh, businesses we are now going to go and talk about a major supply chain attack that is actually underway right now uh, according to reports so, a report that was recently published by Group IB and uh, recently described a very highly sophisticated supply chain attack that's underway against the airline industry. And they're calling this actually the largest supply chain attack on the airline in the on the airline industry in its history. And this monster cyber attack is actually taking place through the supplier CETA. And that's spelled S-I-T-A, who is a global IT provider for 90% of the world's airline industry. Now, Sita handles a broad profile of online services for nearly all of the world's major airlines. And some of these uh, services include reservations, is- issuing of tickets, management of departure times and, and administration of rewards, and frequent flyer programs. And in regards to this attack, CETA has kept details of the incident very short on detail and specifications, saying that it will release more information pending an internal investigation into the actual incident. However, Indications are that the frequent flyer program seems to have been the focus of this attack, given that a number of major airlines have followed up by issuing statements indicating that their frequent flyer programs were compromised through this. And the airlines that have already released their own statements regarding the breach include United, American Airlines, Lufthansa, Cathay Pacific, Singapore Airlines, Air New Zealand, Malaysia Airlines and Air India, to name just a few. So all of those are obviously some big name uh, airlines in the industry. And this attack is already estimated to have impacted 4.5 million passengers and has potentially been traced back to the Chinese state-sponsored threat actor, APT-41, or otherwise known popularly as, as Wicked Spider. Now, the campaign's code name that Group IB gave it is Column TK and that's spelled C-O-L-U-N-M capital T capital K, which they actually uh, derived as it was a string used in the C2 communication by this attack. Now, Air India, who recently revealed details of their security breach, confirmed that it was linked to the CETA incident, and an interesting observation that Group IB's team made in regards to Air India is that the attackers persisted on their network for at least 2 months and 26 days, but the researchers did point out that it only took the threat actors 24 hours and 5 minutes to spread the Cobalt Strike beacons to the vast majority of the airline's endpoints in their network. So they obviously persisted for for almost 3 months but it just took them almost 2 days to actually get the foothold in and the rest of the time they were literally just picking candy from anywhere they actually wanted. And the attackers apparently exfiltrated NTLM hashes and plain text passwords from local workstations using hash dump and Mimikatz and they also tried to escalate their local privileges on some of the machines with the help of the bad potato malware. Now, APT 41 has been active since 2007 and is known for nation state backed cyber espionage activity as well as financial cybercrime. And interestingly, they are known to specialize in supply chain attacks just like this one. And in 2020, the Department of Justice in the US charged five suspected perpetrators of APT-41, all of whom are residents and nationals of the People's Republic of China with hacking more than 100 companies in the US and abroad. Now, airlines are being told to urgently review their networks to see if they have been impacted by this attack, as obviously airlines do have a wealth of information that is of interest, strong interest to intelligence agencies, especially ones like China, who would obviously love to collect travel pattern information of individuals associated with the targets of their national security apparatus.
1: Are you have you taken a step? Uh, of referring to china as an intelligence agency outright is that the red pill
0: is that what, is that what no.
1: <laughs> i'm kidding i'm kidding i'm just teasing oh, no. <laughs> oh sorry <laughs> i didn't
0: get that but they, they do have intelligence agencies definitely
1: some bad ones as well oh, my god they also run a country they just okay. happen to run a country as well but mostly it's mostly about intelligence
0: Winnie the Pooh can get you
1: anywhere you are. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Winnie the Pooh's a bad motherfucker. Eh? Now,
0: now, if I, if I do disappear next week, uh, you guys know why. Okay. I may end yeah, up in worth uh, a re-education <laughs> camp. God. Oh, yeah.
1: Where's, where's oh, the god. money, honey? Or,
0: you know. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh god. Okay
1: so let's talk android dude it's been an hour with and that we have not spoken android let's talk android that's interesting by the way in this podcast we are pretending like a week never went by because i wasn't here so it didn't go by so we're going to talk about a bunch of stuff that happened in may and it's going to be fine exactly don't worry about it it's fine yeah, guys just don't worry about it
0: just exactly we're talking about android security because android is sexy that's how it is and so I'm going to delve into a little bit of it as well and cover a number of interesting areas and just the, and we we'll delve into the evolution that Android has had since its inception. And so I want to just talk it briefly about the three main areas, which I think would be of interest, which is obviously the current patching status of, uh, of uh, the current patching history of Android. And also the evolution of Android's malware that we've been seeing on the platform. And also quite key, the improvements of security within the Android Play Store because of course the Play Store plays a big part eh, on the Android platform being obviously one of the main and primary places where people can obviously get access to apps. Now obviously we know that Android was first unveiled in November 2007 with the first commercial Android device out there being the HTC Dream, which actually was launched in September 2008. And obviously Android is based on the modified version of the Linux kernel and is primarily designed for touchscreen mobile devices. Now, delving into the patching area of Android, we know that Android is obviously developed by Google who does all the tests, the modifications, the updates and the patching to the actual code of Android. And once it's ready to be released, they make it available on the Android open source project or otherwise known as AOSP, which is obviously an open source initiative led by Google
1: which by the way by the way been running on my personal phone for over six months now super lovely specifically okay, see, OS, love but yeah i i thought i thought it was going to be a lot less viable than it actually is just see, and
0: that's really good and you get obviously the security updates much faster which is good because it's obviously through this android open source project that everybody accesses Android and uses it, including the OEMs, but the OEMs obviously have to customize the actual source code to run on their hardware, because of course, Android source code doesn't contain the device drivers needed for certain hardware components on these OEMs handsets. And this is one of the reasons why in the past we've been seeing patching delays and issues that plagued Android in the early years and as you mentioned as well um, you can obviously get the android open source project code as it was intended and released by google if you actually use their former nexus devices or their current android one series or as you mentioned you also rolled it out yourself through graphene os in order to be able to obviously benefit from the quote unquote, real time updates that Google provides. And for many years, the Nexus and Android one series devices have been uh, or have had the reputation of having the best and fastest update cycles, which obviously makes sense because they don't need to go through all the customization that a lot of the OEMs actually needed to go through. And to further complicate matters after device manufacturers got their patches through and on the actual Android open source project code, and they were ready to push them out to the handsets, wireless carriers also added delay because after receiving the updates from the manufacturers, they also further customized Android to their needs and conducted extensive testings on their networks to make sure that the updates wouldn't break anything. And all of this together led to serious delays between patch release the manufacturers which obviously this time delay between the updates was the prime attack time for many malicious groups
1: a fun statistic to consider is that let's say you take upstream android so just off of the upstream linux kernel so the android kernel then you, of course you have the the kernel is rolled by the vendor and then you have you know device drivers as you were saying for different components in different devices, and then you have custom code. So by the end of, of of a production cycle, it can take for updates up to 24 months. So optimizations and updates and security updates for the kernel, uh, maybe not as much with security, but in general, optimizations and changes to the kernel that are quite important, or even preventative measures, such as memory protection and so on, can take up to two years to make it to the kernels that the vendors are actually rolling in their devices. And the code base My for God. commercial devices can differ uh, up to 50% with what is actually would actually be shipped if you're rolling straight Android. So it's amazing the attack surface that is introduced from AOSP onto release.
0: Wow, that is both alarming and frightening at the same time. My God, it's a miracle that they managed to do anything in regards to that as well. And that actually does roll into another main issue was this the fact that in the initial years of Android, a lot of the serious problems with it really stemmed from the fact that there was a lack of after-sales support from manufacturers with a lot of them not explicitly committed to actually providing updates as part of their actual offerings. And now only, Uh, After extensive pressure from Google and the industry, and obviously a lot of pain and realization through hindsight, the OEMs are now starting to realize that providing updates is a critical and key aspect if they want to obviously remain competitive. With recent pledges from large OEMs, including Samsung, to guarantee patches for devices for three years after the device's initial release, which is obviously a huge uh, improvement to the to the previous issues that uh, we had so
1: like 15 years i mean exactly
0: to realize that as well but obviously this was something that google strongly was pushing because they obviously understood the value of uh, the security aspect and the fact that uh, this was obviously a key benefit that apple was always uh, using in its sales pitches in regards to its uh, improved security over Android but uh, in regards to the evolution from the early years uh, Android has definitely come a long way in regards to its patching and it's really good to see that now at least a lot of the OEMs are really committed and understand now from a senior management perspective the importance of making sure that they keep all their devices updated and also bake that into the in bake that in to their commitment to customers after they've purchased the devices now now we're actually going into the area of android malware that we've been seeing over the years since its inception in 2007 it used to be said that exploiting android used to be a breeze compared to now And they have obviously come a long way with things like when they actually uh, deployed uh, aslr protection with android jellybean 4.1 which went a long way to actually helping them uh, helping them improve their security posture and apparently even last year uh, it was actually noted that android Uh, was actually becoming more difficult to hack than iPhones. Uh, With some references uh, back in January of 2020 from companies like Celebrite and Grayshift, which obviously specialize in actual mobile phone compromises, uh, saying that they actually were finding it more difficult to access an Android device now than an iPhone device, which obviously, is a a long way is a big win for android compared to how it used to be as well because back in the day of course it used to be a common place to find uh, key vulnerabilities within Android that could be exploited. So, for example, when we had the examples of Stage Fright and Stage Fright 2 vulnerabilities being, in, being found in Android and also tools for actually compromising Android were very common uh, a while ago, but now it is much more difficult to find reliable tools that give consistently good results. And on top of that, we're not hearing that much uh, anymore about major vulnerabilities such a stage fright these days. So it's clear that Google has uh, done a lot to try and actually improve and reinforce Android's uh, security and protection mechanisms that they have in there, and to compartmentalize better all of the key components over there to make it more difficult for people and malware once they get access to be able to really uh, take advantage and compromise your device any further. And then talking about another key area of Android, talking about the Play Store, uh, just like the other two areas that we obviously discussed, the security of the Play Store, was really not that great at the start at all with very little review and oversight. But gradually, of course, that changed. Uh, And with things like the implementation of the Google Play Protect, uh, it went a long way to actually help uh, improve the security of the Play Store. Now the Google Play Protect actually states that it runs uh, safety checks on apps before you actually download them to make sure that they're safe. It also checks your device for any potentially harmful apps uh, uh, from any other sources that you may have got from apart from the official Play Store. And it also warns you about any detected potentially harmful apps that they obviously find on there and tries to obviously remove them. Now, even though they have come a long way in regards to their Play Store security, they still have some way to go. But back in 2011, uh, it was described that the Android Play Store was actually a malware cesspool, being full of Trojan horses and other malware masquerading as legitimate apps, which obviously nowadays, it's nowhere near as bad as that description. So they've clearly done a good job to actually at least improve it and move it in the right direction. But as with most things, uh, it's never perfect and they still have some ways to go and they can obviously improve it further, which I do believe that is the, uh, that is a driving factor for Google And they obviously do have their heart in the right place when it comes to at least the security of their products and applications that they offer to their
1: customers at the same time we also when we talked about extensions we did go over google's deliberate choice of the shared responsibility model, when it came to keeping Android an open platform and keeping Chrome an open environment. So in the end, if you want complete, if, if you want the level of control that Apple has on the contents that come with the with the App Store, you also need to pay the price for it. So in a way, every open environment that has, I'm not gonna say healthy because that would be cringe, uh, that has kind of a sensible responsibility distribution in terms of security is going to be, quote-unquote, accessible compared to, you know, the App Store. So, for example, I'll take this away and and to, to more, of a, more of a neutral example. So, let's say you you build your infrastructure in AWS. You're a sexy fintech. You're a sexy product company. You <laughs> build your stuff in AWS. I'm it's sorry, so AWS only takes care of patching and configuration management for the managed components that are underlying all of the important stuff, which is the privilege and access management, which is your security groups, which is your federation of identity, etc right So in the end, most environments that are relatively open have that delegated situation in which most incompetent people have to pick up the slack. So the best and the worst are in are in those marketplaces. So I think the comparison isn't fair, if you know what I mean. Like, there the, there's a point in which um, having having a ha, having a higher risk profile in general is a necessary evil because it's a more open platform.
0: But I do think that generally uh, the direction that uh, Google has been taking Android in has been a good one and I do think that overall they have been a good custodian of Android as well and have been doing the doing the taking the necessary steps needed to try and at least secure and improve the experience for the everyday user who uses that platform but with that interesting
1: uh, yeah can, can we talk about the Google I.O. presentation about the state of Android security. Of course, yeah, definitely. I think think there's a few things to take away there and many, many excellent things to come and and definitely trending in the right direction, right? So I don't know what you think about it, but in the end, uh, just for context, and thank you, by the way, for doing that chronicle, I I think most people actually wanted to hear that, to just have a kind of mental map of where we are, where we were, and so on. So in the end, Android... projected to be running on billions of devices in the next few years and the iot or um wearable uh, mobile blah blah blah, device to human ratio i'm I'm using human like you know how a cat (laughs) sees us is going to be 10 to 1 by 2030 by many estimates so this presents unique challenges you referred to source fragmentation so in the end it's extremely hard to predict what w- will wind up running on a device and most of the attack surface is introduced by consumers of the platform like OEMs or you know app creators and so on so in the end what i saw with that google io presentation uh, which was delivered by this fellow who's the director of something or other maybe product security uh, big deal of course um, he 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 was kind of a stoic person he he raised his eyebrow once through the presentation which was like a mo- oh my god <laughs> oh my god. he has some richer iowadi action going he, he will not make any kind of you know emotion or anything like that but but when he does rate, you have to pay attention yeah, yeah, yeah i think the backdrop for updates consider factors and extend on the way Many blog posts and mailing list conversations are happening in the Android sphere, which is nice. So they're very transparent about the real conversations they're having and driving their strategy. And again, lots of evidence of actual strategy (laughs) driving their decision-making, which is in their Google, so it's not surprising, but it's nice to see anyway, right? So in my view, two big axes to this particular presentation. One is ease of implementation. So how do we make doing the right thing easy, Right. So big push on bug hunting facilities for Android. Very nice. And then ease of certification. So as we were saying, to nip this you know kernel and code fragmentation problem, how do we actually make certifying the final release easy and cheap? And so in the end, if testing isn't easy, cheap, ubiquitous, accessible, and so on, it, it may as well not exist. So they did announced this this alliance with IOXT so he has hundreds of partners and Google is going to you know put some real effort into that which is nice. These IOXT people by the way have a base Android smart speaker mobile application and residential camera funny enough profiles that can be tested against and certified so that consumer consumers or rather discerning consumers can actually buy stuff that has been vetted by this particular alliance something else as well Uh, I was saying implementation and certification on the implementation side exciting things to come so he referred to the fact that most bugs in Android are memory corruption which is true for most platforms in reality and there's some funny figures like if you go through the Android blogs there's talk of over 75% of all bugs are memory corruption and this leverage um, long-standing or even recent implementations of Android components which of course are written in low-level languages such as C and C++ which are um, which require high level of skill and and continuous review, code review, integration and fuzzing to keep um, bug-free, right? So the, the language in themselves rely on the skill of the programmer or the development team to actually use memory responsibly and not open up for typical attacks right so uh, a few things to highlight so GKI kernels so general kernels and by the way these kernels are a response to the kernel fragmentation we were talking about earlier right so the kernels using devices are all over the place and historically uh, code specific to components and drivers and products have made it into the kernel which is a mistake so the GKI kernels uh, are designed to be the same kernel across the board, right? Which with no component specific code, and then have a dedicated layer to interface with components, which is also very consistent with the Linux strategy uh, for the kernel of not breaking user space, quite important, right? So for this kernel specifically, KFence will be available. So KFence uh, is, a, is a memory protection mechanism that relies on boundary pages. So uh, good stuff there. That's kind of a pattern in industry, very nice. Then Android 11 and later, we'll get JWP ASAN for all targets. That's a memory allocator. When we were talking about WebAssembly a couple of podcasts ago, we talked about the importance of having a good memory allocator to prevent memory corruption, right? So this is a memory allocation facility that requires no recompilation, no change, no instrumentation of the, of the binaries running on Android. Simply, as a developer, you have to... Uh, set a flag to a specific value in your app manifest and then a sample of the applications across the consumer space will run with this protection in place so when you turn up your phone there'll be a randomly selected set of applications that'll run this and the whole idea is to run this memory protection in as many devices as possible for a few applications so then by the strength by the numbers will make it so that um, Uh, hard to find bugs will eventually be found because so many runs of the same application will have been done with the protection over time right so very interesting again a very easy way to make doing the correct thing uh, seamless for developers which is very important and then some talk about ARM MTE so just just for short ARM MTE is an extension to the ARM architecture that also extends its instruction set and presents an ability to tag pages, again, for memory protection. And that will become, uh, that is already available, but in the end, JWP ASAN is a nice way to set that up. So lots of of memory protection mechanisms coming up and most importantly, being very easy to consume on the Android space. Uh, A couple of other things to mention. Uh, There was an extremely cringy moment where he says, you cannot spell trust without Rust. And <laughs> after falling <laughs> off my chair. I love that. I actually love that. Part. I know, I know you would like that. I know that. Yeah, whatever. That was <laughs> awesome. <laughs> so he mentioned Rust and, and and the fact that Rust is memory safe, which is mostly true. And and the fact that they're working to port sensitive components of Android to Rust. Uh, just reading through the through the kind of zeitgeist, right? They did blogs and then the conversations and so on. I think one of the most interesting conversations going on there, so of course they will be porting, it's, it's a multiple year effort they called, which is nice to see that they're committing to this, but some of the most important conversations are happening at build time. So building Android consistently for many different reasons is very, very important. So being able to predict and replicate the same builds across devices and so on, and making sure that entropy stays outside of the build process, in the case of Android, with so many diverse targets, is extremely important. So just reading through the through the mailing list and so on, uh, one of the best conversations is about how Google is taking quite seriously their influence over the Rust community. The point is, Rust, of course, has their own tool sets, their own package uh, system with it their own names. So in the end, they create this packages called crates, which every language uses their name. It can be a gem. It can be an egg. It can be, you know, every language needs to create this language. Uh, this sorry, this vocabulary. So uh, Google is, is is talking about how do we actually incorporate the elements of Rust and the tools of Rust into the soon uh, build system. So very nice to see that they're actually trying to use as much as possible without acting in the detriment of the project. So they're incorporating as many components as possible from Rust, but they're actually keeping a few out and expressing transparently the reasons why. And they also highlight the fact that they take their influence over people using Rust seriously. So they do not want people to do Rust the Google way, if that makes sense. So they want mm-hmm. people to keep doing Rust. They want Google to the be Rust way. An important <laughs> component of, of the community. But they don't want people to go out of their way, you know, and and to kind of deviate from the rust kind of mindset and and practice and so on. Very important. Then other stuff, which I think you would also appreciate, is the Android Ready SE initiative. So in the end, they're working towards supporting Strongbox, which is uh, hardware-backed safes for secrets. Very important. So let me just quickly pull that up so I can speak to it a little bit better.
0: No problem, but I do think just uh, uh, commenting on what you already just mentioned, I think it's a great uh, it's a great development that Google is obviously incorporating more Rust into their workflow and into their into Android in general because of course Rust does have a really great reputation in regards to its security uh, aspects and uh, it's obviously uh, right now the the darling. Uh, language of the security industry for for that reason. Uh, And so obviously, any incorporation that they can do uh, about Rust into their own workflows would be a huge benefit to all of Android and all the users as well. And just obviously going to the, the whole rust and trust comment uh, earlier. Uh, I do love that comment, but of course, I know that it's very cringy. But the only way it could become even more cringy is if the guy literally said that the only way you can, tr- uh, you can't spell trust without trust, which is just super cringy at that point.
1: Anyway, uh, something else that I thought you would appreciate is the Android ready se alliance so very nice paragraph in their blog it goes when a pixel 3 by the way that's my phone that's the one i'm running was launched in 2018 i had a new it had a new tamper resistant hardware enclave called titan m in addition to being a root of trust for the pixel software and firmware it also enabled tamper resistant key storage for android apps using strongbox strongbox is an implementation of the key master hardware abstraction layer that resides in the hardware security module. So this is the, the code that actually does the interfacing between kernel and the bare metal. Yeah, It is mm-hmm. an important security enhancement for Android devices and paved the way for us to consider features that were previously not possible. Strongbox and tamper-resistant hardware are becoming important requirements for emerging user features, including digital keys, so car, home, office, Mobile drivers' licenses, national IDs, and e-passports, and e-money solutions—for example, a wallet. So,
0: I think that's a great initiative. Definitely, I mean, I mean, it—it it, it, it makes it makes a lot of sense. Obviously, that they 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 store things like of obviously keys in this, in this strong box that they, that they have. But actually, as you mentioned, if they even extend that to things like uh, sensitive types of information, such as your wallet or uh, maybe pass, passport or other types of information that you might uh, have stored on your phone as well, it uh, would be even better. Definitely. So obviously, that's one extra very strong layer of defense that malware and bad guys would have to, obviously, bypass rather than just getting the user just to click on a allow permissions for this malware to access all device uh, profiles.
1: Technically, this is consumed differently, right? So there there would be an internal API for it and the secrets would be stored in this strong box. Exactly, that's, that's how
0: better. I also envision it, so a permission by itself would not be able to access this, which is exactly what you want, yeah. which is actually great.
1: I wonder where the extensions on Android would actually be sitting, so will it be in the Google ecosystem, will it be on Android AOSP, uh, that part is not clear to me. Because this, this this blog post is in the Google blog, it's not in the Android uh, website, so I wonder. It, anyway, would be, so, it,
0: definitely, I mean, it would be something that they would want to be able to obviously update themselves without worrying too much about OEMs, for example, as well. But it would be interesting to see if they could decouple this from yeah, the, but, but the end, main areas. But in the
1: end, they're upstreaming the stuff that worked for them and they've developed internally, right? So the question is, are they hmm. or are they not upstreaming a self-sufficient set of extensions for Android? I, don't I mean, know
0: it would make sense. That would be interesting it'll happen eventually Android. i
1: wonder if it's gonna happen as part of this push you know
0: oh okay um it'll be interesting to see if they do that'd be great but uh, i'm sure that they probably need to actually extensively test it as well to see how it actually goes but i think it would be definitely would be great but definitely android is definitely a system to be uh, excited about because it does have a very exciting future uh, right now, at least in the short to medium term, and definitely under Google's stewardship. It's actually making some great progress. So let's hope it continues on that track for the near future as Fun- well.
1: Factoid, from a Londoner, uh, or at least a London resident, when you walk across, you know, uh, just out of the station in King's Cross, there's a Google building being built and because Ooh. the building is still like they're building the structure out you can see kind of the what will eventually be like the um, stairwells for the building and the stairwells mm-hmm. have little androids in every story to denote the 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 the, the, the actual story they're in <laughs>
0: <laughs> no so the, way yeah yeah <laughs> You so can actually see the on, androids right now.
1: Little <laughs> android, just painted on the wall, like like a like a like a Counter Strike, you know, decal. You know, like it's just little android. If,
0: if, if you can, try to get a photo of it. I will. A I definitely
1: will. Yeah. Cool. be Classic to see. Uh, the last thing I want to say about uh, the Android update, and this is pretty exciting, is more stuff around making the right thing easier. So, as you know, Jetpack Security. Uh, it's part of the Jetpack suite, so Jetpack, Jetpack are just libraries that are r- ready to use. They're dropping, you know, usable libraries for developers to do common things. And of course, they made three key additions to the Jetpack sec- security suite, so libraries that are safe to use, implementations of useful things that people roll on their own, telegram, <coughs> um one of them one of them is crypto 1.0 so safe to use implementation again of files and shared preferences encryption very important for android then and app to app authentication handling authenticated communications between applications that you define as trusted so you you predefine a few settings and then android takes care of the secure communications across apps And then the security identity credential APIs that provide an interface to a secure store for user identity documents, which is what we're talking about earlier as well with e-passports and licenses and so on. Something to note there, I would like to hear your thoughts on this because for sure, this is the classic thing where we don't agree on something, which makes for a fun conversation. (laughs) Um, I'm thinking from a purely consumer perspective, forget about security for a second. I think until you can actually leave your wallet at home and only take your phone, In other words, until your phone is self-sufficient, containing payments, identity, and so on, people will not actually really massively take this up. So I think this uh, Android-ready SE Alliance push is very timely for Google because this is the kind of thing that will make it even possible that people will consider using their phone for actually everything.
0: I mean, I do understand what you mean. But at the same time, I do think that this whole SE Alliance uh, development is very exciting for people like you and me and techies. But I don't think that the general population is really going to uh, be swayed by it.
1: The Alliance will make for easier certification, which will make for governments approving the phone for the use of it and rolling applications that use it for e-passports and so on. So more devices are going to be accepted by governments and government agencies to produce electronic uh, documentation that can be saved.
0: Of course, but I mean, in regards to the main use cases that you just mentioned, in regards to leaving your wallet at home or uh, uh, having a much easier time, for example, with uh, booking and flights, for example, I mean, you can already do that now. I mean, the technology already is in place to be able to do that. And I myself personally, almost at this point now, hardly ever bring out my wallet. I mean, I always just use Apple Pay. Uh, for exclusively almost all transactions that i make because you
1: know you're supposed to have your id on at all times in spain right you know that
0: i know but so far in the years that i've been here the police have never stopped me asking for my id but i do occasionally now you're
1: a straight shooter dude yeah i'm assuming (laughs) of course in my scenario we're all straight shooters
0: hmm yeah. But but that being said, and if any uh, Moses Esquadra are listening, um, I do ca- I do carry all my ID with me at but all times at this point. Time.
1: There's no Moses Esquadra.
0: They're everywhere, no?
1: Really? No, 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 no. So hey. in, 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 in Aragon, which is the province where you live, they don't operate.
0: Oh, even better. I'm even more <laughs> safe now. Hello!
1: <laughs> okay, dude, let's... let's you
0: you can see the limited engagement I've had with law enforcement which is a good thing I now see
1: why you leave your wallet (laughs) at home I now see you you are very much as baby Yoda all right
0: exactly (laughs) but but just going back to the, the comment that you mentioned earlier I mean we already have the ability for people to be able to make extensive use of their phones and leave their wallet at home but people are slowly starting to do that and as with almost most things Uh, especially uh, new technologies that would change habits, people have to get used to it. So I do think that we will see that shift generally as time goes on. But in the same way that when credit cards came out about people were still hesitant to move away from cash, but over time, now we've seen more in developed nations, the use of credit cards was much higher than payments by cash. We'll probably see the same thing happening when it comes to mobile payments and relying more on your mobile device to be able to store and manage things such as your credit cards, your actual uh, boarding passes and things like this. Because of course, we already have that ability.
1: Yeah, and some countries and cultures are slow as balls as well. Like Spain, which is my home country, is, is actually notoriously slow to adopt anything. So this is the country in which mcdonald's had to hire you know real people to point customers to the electronic tilts. Yeah.
0: <laughs> exactly no, do, come let's on let's do bite-sized <laughs> chunks yeah i have a few for you. now now with that. Re- okay Now, with that very interesting discussion that we've had on Android and its development, and of course, we do encourage all of our listeners to also reach out to us with your viewpoints and your comments on it as well, because we would always love to hear you. Uh, Now, we're going to jump onto uh, our argumentally favorite portion, which is our bite-size chunks section.
1: All right, so because I've been away and I've been selecting news for reading that I didn't read in the end, I have many, so I'm gonna go really fast. How about that? Boom, 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 Let's boom. do a few, yeah. So, really good article. I'm gonna put in this I'm gonna put all the articles in the description, yeah. So I'm not gonna say that again. Six questions to ask before adopting usage-based pricing. So it is actually an explanation from a product management perspective of how to choose a pricing model based on key questions you have to ask yourself as a product manager. And also pitfalls to consider. Very interesting. It partitions the argument in infrastructure, middleware, and application, but mostly deals with the questions you need to ask of the customer and of yourself to pick the right pricing model for your application or your service. Extremely interesting. Next. uh, Best practices around production-ready web applications with Docker Compose. Boring. Next. (laughs) I'm going to put it there. It's interesting, though. But it's boring. But it's interesting. Um very nice project maybe told it doesn't look cool looking at the commit history but it's a it's called lucid dynamodb it's a minimalistic wrapper for aws db so a wrapper in the same vein as you know pymongo or elastic dsl or something like that it looks lower level like elastic dsl so it looks very nice so i encourage your listeners to take a look um linked which is a Personal journaling solution. So it's a journal that includes thoughts based on days. It has dark mode, quite important. Keyboard navigation between days, which seems custom, which is a problem. Uh, they need to. Uh, I, I might do a pull request on this just to introduce Vim. But <laughs> <laughs> like, what are you doing? Ah, of course. Uh, and then local. So it's a self-hosted journaling application. Looks interesting. So that's good. Uh, Going to security, and this is more getting into the rabbit hole portion, there's a very, very nice uh, piece of GitHub drama, uh, issue 242 of the Protomail web client. Protomail includes Google reCAPTCHA for login every single time. And of course, uh, developers from Protomail engage. Fantastic. Lots of reactions. Must read. Yeah. Uh, but what's the issue with that is
0: that that people don't want google recapture on there yeah so
1: proton mail prides itself on being a switzerland hosted um anonymizer vpn and zero knowledge email provider right so the fact that it's using javascript proprietary javascript by google that is in essence a tracker of, of sorts Obviously, produces a huge dissonance in the minds of Protomail users. So, drama.
0: Exactly. I mean, it sounds like they're maybe being snowflakes about it, maybe, because of course everyone knows that Google's recapture is arguably one of the most popular and well implemented recapture applications out there. So it makes sense that Protomail, who obviously cares about their security, would try to use one of the better, well. Uh, known recapture solutions out
1: there on their platform. But let's say you're using ProtonMail on a browser in which you have an active session, like a Chrome browser. Let's not get into how stupid that would be. <laughs> but, but let's say you're doing that, yeah? It could be a problem. I don't know enough to understand mm-hmm. whether it's a problem, but I would imagine it's a problem. Uh, and Anyway, you know, real men and women use their own VPN. We established that, right? We've talked about it several times, yeah? So if you're using Proton exactly. VPN, shut the fuck up. Yeah, but the <laughs> drama, the drama in the issue is nice. So read read the issue. Uh, anyway, uh, in our you know um, angel startup product category, which we talk about every once in a while, I would like to direct our listeners' attention to paperd.inc, which is a 4.2 inch e-paper development board to showcase calendar weather, to-do lists, notifications, images, and much more. So this is a pure ink display product, and everybody who's listening for a while knows I'm a sucker for those, so I'm gonna put the link there. Uh, So pay your money and don't expect anything back, you know, same drills as as usually. Another (laughs) kind of drama-related post, which is noise, is one uh, called PGP. the PGP problem, a critique. So there's, uh, there's an individual Making a rant about PGP and then somebody else uh refuting it in a very fun way and detailed way. So this is more on the nerdy drama side of the spectrum, but yeah, it's there.
0: It's always interesting.
1: To me, definitely. Uh <laughs> <laughs> then this is something I meant to actually talk about a few podcasts ago. Grain your WebAssembly first programming language. And uh, that was presented in the WebAssembly Summit 2021. Why is there a WebAssembly Summit? Whatever, that's fine, let's not get into that. But this is a language that compiles to WebAssembly first. Why is that necessary? Also, you know, just read the thread. Maybe not, maybe don't. This is maybe one of the lowest quality bite size chunks. But maybe, maybe it's just worth a read. Just keep in mind for when it absolutely blows up, you you kind of have that in your memory, your recollection. (laughs) And then last, and this may actually gain me, you know, uh, some cringes from the listeners, but uh, I also was taking a look at this project called CX. So it's not a new project per se, but it's a new-ish project. And its goal is to replace Bash for scripting or rather to serve as a layer of abstraction between bash scripts and being happy in your life. So everybody (laughs) knows that as soon as you try to do pretty involved POSIX-compliant scripts or even bash scripts, it's just nasty and ugly and terrible language. So there's this project called ZX. It's a Google project, and it aims to allow you to do shell scripting in JavaScript. So interesting even just for for shits and giggles, interesting.
0: Okay, that actually sounds really promising as well, actually. And of course, if it's coming from Google, I'm not surprised. They always come with some interesting ideas. But I think that would be quite nice as well. JavaScript all the way, baby, definitely. And also some other bite-sized chunks.
1: As so we were talking before the podcast, a few are just way too political. And I, 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 even, even though that will sound as a joke, because we've been pretty political in this podcast before,
0: no, of course not. But sometimes political is fun. So that's not too bad. But just remember guys, all the views and opinions that we share are our own, okay? And most of them are just for fun. So don't take it too cares personally. Which is fantastic. Exactly. So it's fine. But some other interesting bite-sized chunks that we had this week. Fast food giant McDonald's also said on Friday that hackers breached their servers and accessed data from customers in Taiwan and South Korea. But apparently, the files that they accessed didn't contain information about customer payments. Nor were they, and nor did they report any uh, disruption to their operations as well. But the company said that it had worked with experienced third parties to ex- investigate the breach, and they said that they will be taking steps to notify regulators, regulators, regulators. I don't know, and customers who were actually listed in these files of the incident.
1: They are the regulators, dude. The regulators. <laughs>
0: The <laughs> so sorry. So sorry. Then the U.S. Department of Justice also announced on Thursday that a multinational operation has now led to the seizure of It's spelled S-L-I-L-P-P which is a well-known marketplace for selling stolen online logins that offered more than 80 million sets of credentials for sale. And since 2012, Slilip, has been the underground market to actually buy and sell logins for bank accounts, online, payment accounts, mobile phone accounts, retailer accounts and many more as well. So it's really great to actually see obviously another dark web market taken down. And finally EA games publisher of very popular games like Battlefield, The Sims and FIFA admitted to a recent incident of intrusion on their networks in which attackers reportedly stole source code from some popular games and a software development kit. Now the company acknowledged the breach while downplaying its impact saying no personal data of players had been taken and claiming the amount of game source code and tools was stolen was limited but they did say that they have no reason to believe that there is any risk to players privacy and the firm also added that it had made unspecified security improvements and is working with law enforcement and other experts to investigate the intrusion. And I just love that part when they said they've made unspecified security improvements. Like that could just be the general statement that all companies release after a major incident. We've made unspecified security improvements, but rest assured, they are improvements nonetheless. So you can now be rest assured that we have done the right thing. Thank you, EA Games, as always.
1: Consumers do not care at all. At all, exactly. They just want a new version of FIFA. (laughs) By the way, what definition of the word player were they using? Because maybe they were assuming because it was Fortnite or whatever. They're all virgins. So there's no players there, you know, important.
0: EA Games clearly is an expert at that with their unspecified security improvements. <laughs>
1: oh my god. Keep okay. On digging. Keep on digging. Exactly.
0: So, with all of that covered and said and done, we're going to conclude this week's episode. And we want to thank you all for tuning in and listening to another episode. As always, feel free to reach out to Jorge and I as well and give us your feedback and your comments. And if you're obviously listening to us through any one of your popular uh, podcast apps, feel free to leave us a five-star review as well on the platform just to get the message out there, which would be great. And so with that being said, from us here at ShadowSec, we wish you guys a good day and a good week. Bye 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 Hack all the things things. Yeah well good luck Matt